0: Good morning. I can tell that some of you are already meditating on the title of the sermon and thinking, it's not what I was expecting. My name is Walt Childs, and I'm one of the elders here at Grace. And I fill in every now and then. And Patrick called me a few weeks ago, and he asked me to fill in. He said he and Ben were both going to be off on Father's Day. And I said I would do that. And then I asked, what was the passage? There was a long pause. And the moral of that story is whenever you're asked to fill in to teach or preach, you should find out what the passage is before you agree to do so. But it's a privilege to be with you. I will appreciate your patience this morning. I will be using notes because unlike Ben and Patrick, I have not memorized the sermon to this point. We have been going through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount week after week over the past few months and listening as he unpacks what life in the kingdom of God looks like. And he has said a number of unsettling things, provocative things, things I did not expect, things that are sobering. And this morning is one of those things that's particularly sobering. But I am puzzled by... How many of the things that I've heard to this point that are provocative or sobering or out of, out of the ordinary that have little or no impact on me? So Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And I think, come on. Where in our culture is meekness elevated or glorified? In, in sports or politics, in traffic, boarding and... Uh, <laughs> I mean, boarding an airplane, when they say, now boarding sections one and two, and and everyone. I, I think the meek are just going to be passed by while everyone goes to the front of the line. He says if someone strikes you on the cheek, that you're to offer the other one as well. I don't know how many of you have ever been in a fight and been hit in the face. I had one losing effort in junior high. <laughs> but I'm telling you, being hit in the face, it, it is a shocking It's a shocking thing. It's not something I would turn and say, do that again. (laughs) He says we're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. I listen to the radio a good bit, and I'm on social media some. And I can say with great confidence there is very little enemy loving going on in our culture. Uh, By Christians or by those who make no claim to a faith allegiance, Maybe especially by Christians. We like to view the words of Jesus as a delicatessen. And we say, I'll have the pastrami and cheese, but I'm not going to do much with the corned beef. There are things that he says that we like and we emphasize, and there are things that he says that we want to avoid. And this morning is one of those things that I think most of us would like to avoid. There is probably nothing and the Sermon on the Mount that has been said that is more sobering than today's passage. As we look at it, I, I trust that there will be some element of self-examination that we'll take a look inside, but I, I trust that won't be a negative, but that that will be something where we have a real sense of security because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. So if you're able, please stand and we will read Matthew 7, verses 15 through 23. This is the sobering Word of God. You seated. Why don't we pray? Our Father in Heaven, please help me. Amen. As we near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a warning. He actually gives two warnings. I think we'll we'll probably spend a little more time on the second than the first. But he says to his listeners, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. At this time, those who are listening to Jesus are besieged. If you, read, if you read about that time period, they were besieged with people claiming to be uh, prophetic in what they utter and people who claim messiahship and claim to be working miracles. But those folks didn't have a betting system. They didn't have a church library, a Christian bookstore they could go to and look up a particular uh, prophet or pseudo-prophet and find out whether what they were saying was true. And Jesus knows that these imposters may spread some truth, but they will also cover up some things about themselves. They will emphasize some things and neglect other things. And so he gives his listeners a test that will identify the faults from the true prophets. And it's this. Those who speak with true godly authority will exhibit the character that they emphasize. And those that don't are not to be trusted. Let me say that again. Those who speak with true godly authority will exhibit the character that they emphasize, and those that don't are not to be trusted. And then he uses a very simple example to illustrate the point. And he says, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Good trees produce good fruit, and bad trees produce bad fruit. And I think most any botanist would say it's impossible for the opposite to be true. So one who claims to speak for God should be exhibiting fruit that is in keeping with the heart of God. And Patrick and I talked about this a little bit, and and he expressed it like this. There should be a synergy or a connection between one's private profession and their public procession. So what proceeds out of them should be consistent with what they profess. And we don't have to look too far to find examples today where that seems not to be the case, where things are a bit askew. Sinclair Lewis was an American author. He was actually the first U.S. winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1930. He wrote a book, about a phony preacher called Elmer Gantry. And it was a work of fiction, but it was intended to be something of an expose of the traveling evangelists and the tent preachers of that time, the early 20th century. He did not have much use for them. It was later made into a movie with Burt Lancaster, and Burt Lancaster is phenomenal, as Elmer Gantry. But he says this about Gantry. He had, in fact, got everything from the church and Sunday school except... Perhaps any longing whatever for decency and kindness and reason. So it's, it's not just that false prophets are not speaking the truth, it's that they appear to be pious, but they're not practicing whole person righteousness. They speak with a type of authority, but it covers up the fact that they have no real authority. And Jesus seems to indicate when he talks about fruit, there's sort of a, you could call it eventualness. I don't know if that's actually a word, but it implies that eventually the fruit will ripen and show itself to either be good or bad, that eventually they'll be revealed and undone. So, you know, now, as it was back then, those words should motivate us to exhibit discernment to those in whom we place our trust. We we ought to look closely at what proceeds from what those folks profess. And Paul deals with some of the same things in Galatians. And he talks about fruit and what should be evident if we are living according to the principles that Jesus is laying down in this sermon. And he says in Galatians chapter 5, "...but the fruit of the Spirit is love..." Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So we should be in examination mode as we look at those that we follow to see if that type of fruit is evident. And you know, that's really true. That's true for me as, as one of the elders of Grace Church. And it's true for the other elders and the deacons, and the pastor, and the leaders here at church. You, you should be looking to see if that type of fruit is evident. And you will not find perfection, I can speak with great authority, on that. But you should see regular evidence of the fruit that's mentioned in Galatians. So Jesus goes on to his second warning, and it's even more sobering and more alarming than the first. Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, the third president of the United States, uh, had his own unique New Testament, and he literally cut and pasted passages that were appealing to him, based primarily on ethics and morality. He included much of Jesus' moral teaching, but he left out anything that dealt with the divine, the miraculous, the supernatural. And he included all of the Sermon on the Mount, except these three verses. (laughs) And Jesus says, not, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's unsettling that Jesus speaks of a potential separation for some from his future kingdom. I would, rather, I would rather not address that issue. But what adds to the uneasiness is that he is speaking of people who appear to be busy doing the work of the ministry. They, they appear to be involved in God's kingdom. They're doing acts of service or at least acts of ministry. <clears throat> On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and on that day the day of the Lord the day of reckoning these folks will begin to make a case for themselves and they will open up their iPad or whatever device they're able to get into the afterlife and they will go to a file that says things done for God and then they will begin to expound on their qualifications and then I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness. That, my friends, is a sobering statement of Jesus. And I'm sure it was sobering to his listeners. And I'm sure it was not what they were expecting to hear. But the question is, you know, what is he saying about the essence of discipleship? What what are these people who are making their case, what are they missing? And I think what they're missing, what they're demonstrating, is that they had activity without having intimacy they were busy doing things for god but they were not living in a relationship with him and the result of that disconnect is that the fruit they were producing did not reflect the essence of god's kingdom if you look again what what they said they did lord did we not prophesy in your name and we cast out demons in your name and we did many mighty works in your name we did big works we did public works. We hit Grand Slam home runs in the bottom of the ninth. We didn't single people to death. We, we had the big blow. And oh, by the way, we did them in your name. It's reminiscent of uh, the story in Luke 18 where Jesus talks about the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And you recall the prayer of the Pharisee, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners and unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I get. Keep in mind, these folks are sincere. They think, because they're naming the name, that they're doing God's work. But if we think back to all of the sermon, all of the, the, the weeks that we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount, there's nowhere in the sermon. Nowhere that Jesus promotes or recommends the type of works that these people have done here. On the contrary, he calls us to live more simply, to live less sensationally, to value meekness, to reject anger, to love our enemies. And their resume is missing those works of mercy and compassion. The fruit that they have produced would indicate they haven't spent much time listening to Jesus because I think the more time we spend listening to Jesus, the more we become like him. There is um, a fragrance, if you will, an aroma. You've been around people like that. They just, they smell like Jesus. If, if you are cutting up onions or you're cutting up lemons, you don't have to tell anybody else in the house what you're doing. You, you smell like that. Um, It's summertime, what's the ultimate, what's the ultimate fragrance? The beach. You smell like the beach. You know, whether it's salt and sand and um, suntan lotion and all those things put together. There's a great great episode of Seinfeld, which, of course, I believe Seinfeld can solve any issue in life. But (laughs) there's this great episode where where Kramer comes up with the idea that he's going to make a cologne called the ocean. And Jerry has a great line where he says, I can't believe I'm saying this, but that sounds like a good idea. So, so Kramer pitches it to Calvin Klein and he's rejected. And then like a year later, he, he comes to find out that there's an ad in this magazine with a little smell strip. And Jerry's dating this model who's advertising ocean cologne by Calvin Klein. And they've stolen his idea, you know, hilarity ensues. But, um, but there's that fragrance. Because of where we've been, um, my father died suddenly when I was 21 years old, and uh, he had a, one of his coworkers was a dear friend and was a dear friend of the family, and he remained so for many years. And I moved away, but uh, stayed in touch, and I would come home pretty regularly and, and run into him, and he would say, he he would say, uh, Walter, you you look just like your dad. You remind me so uh, so much of your dad, you talk like him, and you walk he said, you even stand like him. And that, that was such a comfort to me, and still is and, and it, it reflects the issue of who do we look like the one we spend time with? Do we spend time with Jesus? And if so, do we look like him, do we reflect his DNA? Do we imitate him? Do we bear a resemblance to him? I'm going to step out because I'm a one-off, and so if you're offended, that's okay because I won't be here next week. (laughs) But i got to say, our Christian culture seems to be really angry and really combative. And we seem to be really ready to fight and to argue and to insult. We are quick to circle the wagons and we pull up the drawbridge and we lash out at those outside our belief system. And I know that we say we are fighting the culture war and we are, we are preserving God's truth. But I'm telling you, It doesn't seem like that's how Jesus did it. And he interacted with prostitutes and dishonest tax collectors and people who drank too much wine. And he loved them. And and I think for that reason, they seemed to want to be around him. And I'll stop there. And I'm I'm not immune to that. Okay, I desire not to take a self-righteous approach, even to those within our Christian community. I was driving down the road this week, in beautiful Western North Carolina, and I passed this house it had a big flag in the front yard. And it wasn't an American flag, and it was a flag that made a statement. It was a flag that was intended to say something about what they believed. And I looked at the house that was up behind the flag and I said, yep, it looks like the kind of house that person would live in and I drove on down the road. And thankfully, (laughs) I didn't get too far and I think the Holy Spirit whispered in my ear, you read the passage that you're preaching on this week? (laughs) And and I'm thankful to say I I was able to repent and say, you know, God, I know you love those people. And before you wonder which flag, it doesn't matter. If it was your flag or if it was a flag on the other side that you disagree with, it doesn't matter. The point is, I I was unkind and unloving, and I judged those people. And that's exactly what Jesus called us not to do. Um, What he's teaching has also been summarized in Matthew 25. For I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me drink, I was a stranger and you welcomed me, I was naked and you clothed me, I was sick and you visited me, I was in prison and you came to me. Those are not natural actions. Well, we don't typically, some some people have a compassionate heart, I think unprompted, but like me, I, I really have to be pushed to care about anybody but me, but I think uh, Paul talks in Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit. That's produced by the Spirit. We keep in step with the Spirit. We walk with, walk in the Spirit. We listen to the Spirit. We're prompted by the Spirit. And that comes from spending time with Jesus. This, that's some of the fruit that he calls us to produce. Uh, Frederick Bruner is a, a theologian who's written a great commentary on Matthew, and he puts it this way. The calisthenics of this sermon is to move repeatedly from kneeling to walking. The direction of the sermon is toward the neighbor, through the Father. So we you know, we talk about, Jesus talked earlier about praying and fasting, that we pray, we fast, we kneel, we, we ask God for help, then we get up and we move toward our neighbor and we try and find out, how are you? Do you need help? Do you need a meal? Do you need me to mow your yard? Uh, the, those, there are practical things that, that I believe are the heart and hands of Jesus that we can carry out. So, so the question becomes: is, is obedience our criteria for acceptance by God? Is it performance based? Is it resume building, or is it activity with intimacy? You know, when our children were little, I wanted them to obey, but not just obey. I mean, I wanted them to love me, I wanted them to know me. Uh, I was, <laughs> I was recently listening. Uh, to a Father's Day CD, music CD, that one of my daughters made in 2011. And it is still a great CD. And I'm listening to it going, wow, I really like that. Wow, well, I really like that song. And I didn't give her a list, but she knew me. She knew me well enough to go, oh, yeah, Dad likes that song. He likes that song. So that's what intimacy produces. So so where is the hope and the encouragement from this passage because it's Father's Day and you're supposed to give people some hope and encouragement. Um, I want to watch this clip from a show called Rectified and it's to set it up it's um, two men are on death row and they're in solitary confinement they have adjoining cells and they are able to communicate only through an air vent between the cells but they have established a relationship they've become friends and one of them is being led to his execution. So watch this. Need to go. Daniel. Daniel. Daniel, I, I need to say something to my friend. Doesn't look like he wants to speak to you. I just need a moment. Need to go. Please. It's okay. Look at me. Look at me, brother. Daniel. He didn't do it. How do you know? Because I know you. Because I know you. Because I know you. We have to go. Bye, brother. Because I know you. God knows us. The flip side of him saying, I don't know you, is that I do know you. We have a loving Heavenly Father who sees us completely without disguise. We don't have any covering. We don't have any facades that we can throw up. He knows us and he loves us. Bob Dylan said years ago in a song, he knows your deeds He knows your needs even before you ask. The kingdom message, the heart of the gospel, is not about naming the name. It's not just about being active for God. It's about reflecting His nature. Romans 5, 8 says, God, but God. But God demonstrates His love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we were able to make our case before we began to recite our resume. God loved us. God sent the sacrifice of Jesus, his son, on our behalf. So, we don't need to boast about our pious practices and we don't need to list our accomplishments on God's behalf. God is the master gardener. God is the one who's producing the fruit. God is the one who grows good fruit in us. And he tells us that the fruit that we are called to produce is to love God with all our heart and mind and strength and soul, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to love one another. And Jesus says that is how mankind will know that we are his followers. Amen and amen.